We, we last left off talking about the worship services in mid, the medieval church. And I want to talk about medieval preaching. Um, Hughes Oliphant Old identifies some characteristics of preaching in the Middle Ages. I'm going to mention just a few of them. Um, the first is this. The increasing difficulty preachers have in interpreting scripture. Um, there are a few things that make preaching in the Middle Ages difficult. Even more difficult than, than now, believe it or not. Um, the first is this, the distance of time, the distance of time. Remember, we're marking off the Middle Ages as, you know, 600 AD and later is what I'm considering Middle Ages. Um, after 500 years or more, the world of Jesus and the disciples, well, this is how Hughes Oliphant Old puts it. He says, it had become distant figures of long ago and far away. It was difficult for a monk from, say, the kingdom, kingdom of Northumbria to imagine what life in Galilee or Jerusalem might have been like. With the fall of the Roman Empire and the barbarian invasions, the New Testament, and in fact, the whole Bible, was becoming very difficult to understand. It more and more became a book of mysteries that could only be solved by mystical contemplation. So, you know, by the 600s, they can't even imagine what first century Galilee would have been like and so more and more, they give up on trying. And so instead, you start to see mysticism on the rise, mystical, allegorical interpretations of scripture on the rise. We'll talk more about that in just a moment, actually. Um, the, set first, so the first thing is the distance of time. It's been 500 years now since the time of Christ. That feels like an eternity to the medieval preachers. Um, there's the distance of language. Um, there's a language barrier now by the Middle Ages. Um, here's Hughes Old again. He says the language barrier contributed to the difficulty in understanding the scriptures. How can one do grammatic historical exegesis when almost no one west of the Adriatic Sea could read Greek, let alone Hebrew? True expository preaching was almost impossible. No wonder the conscientious preacher found allegorical exegesis attractive. So we'll talk about allegorical exegesis in just a little bit. But um, I'm going to ask a, a question that will invite you to participate just a little bit. When we talk about grammatic historical reading of Scripture, what do we mean by that? Grammatical? Grammatic historical, yeah. I, I don't want to use these phrases and just run by you like, like you know what they mean. Language of the day. So the grammatic would be language of the day. And what's the historical part of that mean? Bingo. Yeah, what's going on in the time in which it's written? Um, because remember, it's written by a person in a specific context. You know, we take it for granted. But like when we when I did my sermon series on the book of Galatians, I'm constantly talking about what's going on in Paul's world when he writes this book. Right. And that's how we preach these letters. That's how we preach these books, um, because we want to know what was being said at the time and we want to know what they meant at the time. That's a grammatic historical approach to scripture that just would have eluded somebody who's, who's in the Middle Ages. It, it wouldn't have eluded everybody, but remember, it's going to elude your average preacher. Yeah, John. Yes, the, the people of the time, in terms of, okay, you we're still living with an agrarian society, and, and no, tech, no technology, they had more in common in many ways I mean, 600 years didn't mean a lot in terms of, of how they lived. 
So wouldn't that imply that they would have a, a better understanding of the times, of the time and society that Jesus lived in than we, than we have now because we cannot relate to that type of a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So we can relate to... We can relate to the agrarian uh, world, right? Um, uh, middle age, someone in the Middle Ages is going to very much understand what it's like to scatter grain yeah. and to, uh, to gather a harvest in a way that somebody living in the city, maybe not so much. So there are things that we're going to be able to connect with that, 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 they, that, that they would have connected with that we wouldn't connect with as well. Yeah, Asha. I mean, just think that's part of your normal being a human, knowing what happened, how ancient Rome looked like. But these people did not go to school. If they did, they might have never studied history mm -hmm. as a subject. And I think that's, that's kind of where the... There are a lot of things we can take for granted that we don't even think of, you know, that, that would have been... You know, your average person, what are they doing? They're getting up every morning, they're going and eking out a living, and they're trying to live another day. And so in a lot of ways, they don't have time to sit down and go, you know, I should learn some more about what Rome was like in the first century. Um, you know, that is your average person is just going to that's going to be so far away from them. Mm -hmm. And your preachers are average people, too. So don't think of them all as being highly educated. Instead, think of it as um, think of it as a guy who grows up in a town and has an interest in God and the Bible and. Um, is able and willing to serve, but doesn't know the deep things, you know, mm -hmm. doesn't know how to, you know, he doesn't have a Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, you know, <laughs> and that's like a bare minimum kind of thing you want somebody to have in their hands, but he's not going to have that. Instead, he's going to have a lectionary. In fact, that's actually the next thing I want to move to, because this is one of the results of the distance of time, of the distance of language is you get an, an, an increased emphasis on the lectionary. A lectionary is like a, it's like a list of passages that you are going to be reading um, in the church service every year. You're handed a booklet that says, make sure you read John. Make sure you read John chapter 6. Make sure that you read uh, Matthew chapter 3. Uh, make sure that you read Psalm 51, those sorts of things. Um, that's what you're going to get. Um, it became more normal and it came, became more needed. Um, so instead of what you got with someone like John Chrysostom, who I've already lauded and praised and spoken very highly of in the, the early church, instead of someone like John Chrysostom, what does he do? He, he does lectio continua preaching, which means that he just starts in a verse and he just works his way through the book, kind of like what we do. Um, and, he's, and they don't do that because they can't. They don't have the ability to. And so instead, it became more ordinary for preachers to focus on the big passages that are part of the yearly annual routine and cycle. So that means there's now a bigger emphasis on the liturgy. Preaching itself becomes overshadowed by the overall service. Why? Because the preaching's bad. And you, what are you going to do? You're going to double down on the things that you can do well, and you're going to back off on the things that you can't do as well. This is just sort of a natural thing. And so throughout the, the Roman, or throughout the churches, throughout the Middle Ages, this is what ends up happening, that more and more the careful exposition of the scripture falls by the wayside, 
and the service itself is now seen as something that interprets the text. So going through the motions of singing the songs and having the Eucharist, um, all of these things end up dominating what you think of when you think of going to church. Like when you think of going to church, I think it's very much so you probably think of the sermon, right? If someone asked you, what do you do on Sunday mornings? It's hard for me to imagine none of us saying, well, there's a sermon somewhere in there, right? And yet you, you could in the Middle Ages easily explain a service and maybe not mention the sermon. You might mention the mass. You might mention the songs. You might mention uh, kneeling. You might mention um, all of these other things and you might leave out the sermon um, because it may be very short and it may be very low quality. Um, so here's what Old says. Often preaching simply dropped out. This succumbing of scripture and the preaching of scripture to the demands of an increasingly ceremonial liturgy is surely characteristic of the way the ministry of the word was exercised during the Middle Ages. I want to be very careful to say this, though. There are exceptions. In fact, we're going to look at some exceptions in just a minute. Um, Great preaching still existed during the Middle Ages. Um, But just know the obstacles to preaching. The obstacles were very real. You know, I think your average church member just does not realize the incredible strides that we have made in language, in giving ministers tools to understand the original language that they just simply did not have in the Middle Ages. If they saw how I use accordance in preparing for a sermon, their heads would explode. Like <laughs> they wouldn't even they wouldn't even know what to think. Um, and that's not because I'm great with language, but because I have such incredible tools that are that are that will help me um, deal with these things. Were, were the uh, was the clergy literate on by and large? The cl- clergy would have been literate, but they would not have been. They would not have been. They would not have known the other languages. They would. It would be rare to know Hebrew and Greek. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you've got it. Then you've got a bigger emphasis on the liturgy. So then, what do you have? You have a bigger emphasis on the liturgical calendar. Um, when you put together the readings for the lectionary, what are you gonna? Where are you gonna highlight? Well, you're gonna make sure that you have certain readings during certain seasons, right? It makes sense to have readings about the death of Jesus and the resurrection around Passover time. So eventually, it becomes unthinkable not to have those readings during those times. And so eventually it was more like the preacher couldn't imagine what else he could do than preach on those subjects during the times that the lectionary told them they were supposed to. Um, Here's something else that Old says. He says, while patristic preaching, the patristic preaching is the early church fathers. While patristic preaching was characterized by an emphasis on regular expository preaching that went through one book of the Bible after another, medieval preaching was characterized by a predominance of festal preaching that, fo- that, that following the liturgical calendar attempted to open up the primary mysteries of the Christian faith. So here's, here's what I've, uh, I've, I've talked about this before. Our Sunday school curriculum is meant to take kids through the whole Bible, not just the big stories. Um, but, you know, there are Sunday school curriculums out there that what do they do? They, they say, look, every year we need to get through the Bible and we want to get all the big stories for the kids. So what do they do? They focus on the big stories, right? What are the big stories that you got to have in a children's Sunday school class? Noah. All right, got to have Noah. Got to have that boat with those cute animals. Yes. Adam and Eve. Got to have Adam and Eve. Jonah. 
Moses, David and Goliath. You got to have like three weeks on David and Goliath. <laughs> Daniel and the lion's den. Uh, Jesus's miracles, the feeding of the 5,000. Um, you know, you guys just gave a version of what would be a medieval lectionary. What do you need to make sure that you hit throughout the year? So you're going to have some things that you're really good at and some, some that you're not so good at. You're going to have passages that you've mastered because you've preached 20 sermons on it. And then you're going to have other, other passages that you just don't know very well at all. Yeah, it, it, because here's what happens. You have such a loaded calendar, um, such a loaded church calendar. Like if you, you remember the reading that I gave, I think it was last week or the week before, two weeks ago where I was talking about how loaded up the calendar was with saints days, with other different holidays, where eventually there are almost as rarely a Sunday when there's not some kind of holiday overlapping with it. And you have very few Sundays where you have latitude, where you could just, where you could just preach on whatever you wanted to. And so you end up just talking about the majors and leaving out the minors. Now, here is one thing that happens in the Middle Ages, and it is actually part of the sermon today. I don't know if you noticed this or not. The carefully structured sermon is a medieval innovation. You had preaching orders like the Benedictines, the Dominicans, and the Franciscans. And they, they came to appreciate the art of putting together a carefully structured sermon. Um, here's how Hughes Old puts it. He says, few of us realize, you realize it, but nothing could be more medieval than a three-point sermon outline. The friars were masters of the sermon illustration. They peppered every sermon with examples, uh, funny stories, edifying stories that kept the attention of their listeners. So when you got your your three-point sermon today, that's a very medieval innovation. Um, I almost, I'm actually in two weeks going to preach a sermon that has no points. And you are going to feel so confused, you guys. (laughs) What is going on? What are the points? (laughs) Um, just to keep you on your toes, you've got to change things up every now and then. Um, so let's talk about a, my favorite preacher from the Middle Ages, Bernard of Clairvaux. Bernard of Clairvaux lives from 1090 to 11, I want to get the date right, 1153. 1090 to 1153, probably the brightest star or preacher in the Middle Ages if Chris Austin was the, pre- the best preacher of the patristic era. Bernard has to be his equal in the Middle Ages. Um, I say equal, but he doesn't... If you have to pick between reading Bernard and reading John Chrysostom, read John Chrysostom. Um, we'll explain why in a bit. We have three songs in our hymnal that are written by Bernard. O sacred head now wounded, Jesus the very thought of thee, and Jesus thou joy of loving hearts. Um, Bernard is good at sound bites. You know, he's tweetable. Bernard is tweetable. Um, here you go. God has no better gift for us than himself. That's Bernard of Clairvaux. Um, at first, sin is only a possibility, then more probable, but still a heavy task. Next, it is easy, then light and sweet, and at last, necessary. So he's kind of talking about sort of the progress in which temptation becomes something that we just can't even resist the thought of doing it eventually. Um, here's, here's another one. This is longer. You can't tweet this one. If you should see a starving man standing with mouth open to the wind, inhaling drafts of air as if in hope of satisf- gratifying his hunger, 
you would think him a lunatic. But it is no less foolish to imagine that the soul can be satisfied with worldly things. They're just great illustrations, right? He's good at illustrating divine truths. What you're going to eat the wind, that's not going to satisfy you at all. Um, Calvin and Luther quote him a lot. Um, You ladies that are going to be going through reading Calvin's Institutes, um, he quotes Bernard. You'll notice he quotes Bernard. He likes Bernard. Uh, He quotes Bernard as often as he possibly can. He almost quotes him as much as he quotes John Chrysostom. Um, He especially quotes Bernard when it comes to the imputed righteousness of Christ given to his people. So Calvin quotes him a lot on the doctrine of salvation. Um, Calvin sees him as a kindred spirit when it comes to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Um, Probably the best known preacher of the Crusades. Bernard of Clairvaux is known for preaching the Crusades. Um, He went from city to city, preaching the importance of the Crusades, getting people worked up about going to Jerusalem to take back the Holy Land. Um, Hughes Old, though, mentions the fact that even though Bernard is so famous for going and preaching the Crusades, we have none of his sermons left. We have none of his sermons that he preached about the Crusades. Um, Old says, everyone who was there spoke of Bernard's celestial voice, his aura of holiness. How strange what he actually said has been forgotten. Um, it's kind of like the worst thing you could say about a preacher. He was really great. I don't remember anything he said. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't that great of preaching. Um, so by Bernard's time, the sermon had become a literary form. So they would preach something so that they could be written or published. And so the, the sermons that we have from Bernard probably were not the way that he preached them. Instead, he preached them and then he wrote them in a way that was later to be published. Um, Let me talk about two of his sermons. He's got a sermon on the book of Song of Songs. I've told this story before, but when I was a kid, I was sitting reading Song of Songs in church. And my dad looked over and got very stern with me and said, that book is not for kids. (laughs) I should have said to him, you should read Bernard, Father. Because because Bernard, Bernard, uh, this is a sexless narrative for Bernard. So... (laughs) That's the only thing I could possibly describe it. Um, He takes a very, these are his most famous sermons. You can go online and look up the sermons of Bernard of Clairvaux and probably you're going to end up seeing sermons on the Song of Songs is what you're going to see. These are very mystical in orientation. There are some aspects of his interpretation that are familiar. There are some that are going to be very strange to us. Um, He takes an Uh, an allegorical reading of the text, which means he doesn't say what's going on in this passage. If you do a grammatic historical reading of Song of Songs, then more than likely what you're going to be doing is you're going to be preaching a sermon on the act of love between a man and a woman and the pursuit of one another and a a discussion of romance uh, as God intended it. I think that's, that's a grammatic historical reading of the Song of Songs. Because that's what happens in the book, right? They're pursuing each other and they're kissing each other. They're making love. And so there's all of that in the passage. And so it ends up being a not-so-kid-friendly sermon series, maybe. Um, depending on who preaches it and how grown up they are. Um, <laughs> let me give you an example of the way... The way that what he's saying ends up, the the way that the text speaks and the way that ends up being preached. So the very beginning of Song of Songs, uh, 
Song of Songs 1-2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Um, very straightforward reading of this passage is this woman is crying out for her lover to give her a kiss. That's what she's asking for. Give me a kiss. Um, on one level, that's what this is. But Bernard says the lover in this song is Christ and the bride is the church. And uh, just a quote from him, he says, For my Jesus utterly surpasses all else in his majesty and splendor. Therefore I ask of him what I ask of neither man nor angel, that he kiss me with the kiss of his mouth. So what is the song saying that the kiss of his mouth is? Well, Bernard says that there is a distinction to be made between the mouth of the kisser and the kiss itself. Um, Here's what he says. The mouth that kisses signifies the word who assumes human nature. The nature assumed receives the kiss. The kiss, however, that takes its being both from the giver and the receiver is a person that is formed by both. None other than the one mediator between God and mankind himself, a man, Christ Jesus. So Bernard changes, I think he changes it, right? His allegorical reading turns the Song of Songs into a commentary on the two natures of Christ. He has a divine nature and he has a human nature. Christ himself is the kiss of God. And he says that this psalm begins with an appropriate longing for Christ. So as soon as, the, as, soon as the song opens, what are they doing? They're crying out for Jesus. It's the church crying out for Jesus. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Um. In his later sermons, Bernard constructs an entire Trinitarian theology based on the different variations of kisses in the Song of Songs. Um, now, this is just sort of a glimpse. I'm just, letting, I'm just letting you dip your toes in a little bit when it comes to an allegorical reading of a passage in action. Um, Song of Songs was a favorite of preachers who appreciated the allegorical reading of the text. Um, it's, it virtually invites this reading, right? It's a tale of romance between Kohelet and his bride. And it's just begging somebody who's preaching on it to find some deeper meaning. And, and I'm actually not, when I talk about it like that, I'm making it sound like I disagree with the allegorical reading. I'm not saying that. I think actually if I preached Song of Songs, I would do both. I think it is an, a literal romance. And I think literal romance, especially a healthy romance, is a picture of Jesus and his church. So you can actually receive both and appreciate both. You can, do, you can have your cake and eat it too with the Song of Songs is what I'm trying to say. Um, now, sometimes this has been mocked as an extreme example of misguided biblical exposition. And I just want to come to the defense of especially how Bernard preaches the Song of Songs. Because this is very much, this is not an innovative thing that Bernard does. The early church fathers did it. They did it with the books that invited it. The Song of Songs invites it in many respects. The early church fathers and the reformers, they read this as being a type of relationship between Jesus and his church. Um, Many who normally use the grammatic historical preaching method still will employ an allegorical reading for Song of Songs. So um, just giving you a taste of probably the most commonly allegorical interpreted book in the Bible by, by giving you this, actually. Um, I could give some wild examples of Bernard's use of the allegorical method. My goal here is not to mock him. Um, I want to be appreciative. 
And so I actually picked this example because it's so close to something that we might still see today. Um, I don't want us to see the medieval preaching as being a, a great distance from ours. I want us to find the things that we can connect with. Um, and in that respect, let me take us to another sermon, a sermon on Psalm 91. Um, this is much more straightforward than his sermons on the Song of Songs. Um, in fact, yeah, if you want to, you could turn there. We're going to look at just a little bit. This is, we're not going to go deep on his sermon, but I just want to give you an idea how he reads something like Psalm 91. Um, <clears throat> So remember, he didn't have the tools we have today. Bernard did not know Hebrew. He did not know Greek. So he is reading from Jerome's Latin Bible. And he's doing all of this from the Latin. So he's not looking at the original language. Um, Bernard makes much of the rich imagery of Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is full of illustrations. It is just, they're just everywhere. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Um, this idea of hiding under the sun, hiding under the heat, dwelling in a shadow. And he's got this fortress language. It's got the, the snare of the fowler. Um, he's, he will cover you with the pinions, uh, with his pinions, and under his wings you'll find refuge. That's four illustrations in four verses. Um, and so Bernard, and this is what you would do in a situation where you don't know the languages you might dwell more on the illustrations, right? As a, as a preacher, you could imagine how you could, you could get a lot, you could mine a lot of material from the imagery that's used in the passage. And so look at verse three, for example. Psalm 91, verse three, it says, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. And, and he, he extrapolates from this that we are like the beast who is hunted, right? We're the beast that's being hunted. And he says, are we then beasts? Beasts indeed. And then he opens up this image from scripture. And he says that, you know what we are? He says, we're like animals that need someone to take care of us and shepherd us and to protect us from the hunters. Right? We're, we're like the animal here that's being pursued and we need a protector. And that's what God is. God is the animal herder who takes care of his creatures, creatures like you and I. And... Um, so it's a humble image. He says, we need to be rescued from the snares. We need to be rescued from the cliffs because we're dumb animals. We might just try to run right off a cliff. And, and he says, we need someone to care for us. And that's what God is. You know, we get ourselves into trouble all the time, says Bernard. <clears throat> and then he goes to verse four. Um, and you can imagine someone preaching a whole sermon on one of these verses, right? And that's what Bernard does. Now, I couldn't do it, but Bernard does. Um, in verse 4, the psalmist says, His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. And Bernard says, You know, most shields are wide at the top and they're narrow at the bottom, right? Like, you know, you're, well, I'm going to draw a terrible shield now just because. But, you know, he says, Look, your average shield is, and a buckler is, is wide at the top and it's narrow at the bottom. What are we to make of that? And he says, well, God is more concerned with protecting our higher nature, he says. God is more, more concerned with protecting our soul than he is with protecting our, our body. So there's less protection for what is below. There's more protection for what's above. Is this very good exegesis? I don't think so. I don't think so. But he actually is drawing out a biblical principle that God cares about the soul and that he is less concerned with our body, right? Jesus says, don't fear him who can destroy your body. So he's not... He's not teaching untruths, but he's taking truths from other scriptures and he's, 
He's making something of the illustration and the imagery. Again, he's working within the limitations of what, of what he's got. Um, I, you know, God doesn't promise us a long life. He does promise to protect our souls. So uh, the sermon illustration is, is a good illustration just maybe with you know the right the right doctrine from the wrong text you know i think that's i think that's what d.a carson called it yeah What's jim a buckler? a buckler that would be like your shield yeah yeah it's a smaller shield usually um so old makes one more observation about bernard's preaching that i think is worth sharing he says um he says he often develops a biblical uh, a particular biblical figure of speech at length in one sermon and then uses it repeatedly in other sermons without explaining it. Um, so he has a number of favorites, such as the kiss of the mouth found in Song of Solomon. And what Bernard is doing here is he's teaching his congregation the biblical language. He's equipping them to think in scriptural idioms. So maybe after a while, he stops explaining what the kisses of the mouth are, right? You've, you've heard me talk about it so much that you know what the kisses of, of, my, of the mouth are. Um, so notice this. This is what you, you should notice about preaching in the Middle Ages. You've got a diminished linguistic capability paired with a moment when the historical setting of the Bible feels so distant and so ancient, uh, much more ancient than it even feels to you and I today. Um, and when you, when you pair those things together, you are going to find people just begging for a way to connect with the events and the worlds of Scripture. Hence, you find people gravitating toward familiar patterns and images and ways of reading the text. This is what's happening in the Middle Ages. Um, I'm also taking our time talking about some of this because I want you to feel the need for the Reformation. I want you to feel the need for the Reformation to be right around the corner, right? It's still, from Bernard, it's still 500 years off. Um, eh, 400 years off, depending on whether you're Luther or whether you're somebody coming a little later. Um, but the need is, is there and it's starting to form. Um, you don't even get Hebrew primers. A primer is just a way to learn the language. You don't even get Hebrew primers in the, until the Middle Ages, until, uh, the, until uh, the 1500s. Um, Luther uses one of the first Hebrew primers to learn the language so that he can translate the Old Testament. Um, before that, he actually translates the whole New Testament and he can't do the Old Testament until he learns Hebrew. And so he gets Hebrew, but even the Hebrew that he learns is brand new, just got published. So they're working with very cutting edge linguistics uh, in the time of the Reformation. I want you to know, though, there is plenty of preaching taking place in the Middle Ages, but it's not taking place in corporate worship for the most part. It's taking place in monasteries. So the monks get together on a daily basis. They listen to each other preach. They're preaching for each other on a daily basis. And so... Um, the preaching orders of the church, often very sophisticated in what they did, but much of that was never seen by an average person. Your average person in the church was not getting a, you wouldn't hear about the Trinity, you know, for the most part. Yeah, Asha. Is the preaching done in Latin? The preaching is, as I understand it, is not done in Latin. It's, it's done in the language of the monks, wherever they are. But then when they're writing this stuff down, it's Latin. So the, the publishing version is in Latin. The published version is in Latin. And I could, I could actually be mistaken. Maybe all their preaching is done in Latin. But I, my understanding is that the monks are preaching for each other in the vernacular of wherever they're at. And they're preaching in the church for the, for the general population. Good question. I'm pretty sure it's Latin that they're speaking in the, in the church service because they're, they've like constricted themselves to it, right? This is the language of the church. 
This is how we talk. This is how we explain these things. Um, so the people couldn't even understand what was being preached because they didn't speak Latin. So I, I, my understanding is that I, I'm trying to think. I'm, here's the reason I'm stammering. I don't know if there are exceptions to this. I don't know if there were there were monasteries, for example, where they felt like it was necessary to speak in the language everybody in the monastery speaks, or if they all know Latin, or if they make Latin classes their first lesson. But I, I know this: it's the language of the church. It's the language that you do all of these things in. And so um, I may end up backtracking on that, but I, I don't know. For the most part, it's Latin. But there may be examples where they're doing vernacular teaching too. Sorry for the stammering, Micah. You know, you hear Bernard Bowen. I think his uh, preaching really holds to the text very closely. Uh, but when he does expand, he expands well with theological truths. But when he's preaching to people who don't have the Bible and can't read it and have no understanding of it except for his doctrine... It's not surprising that, though he does it well, that the guy who comes and preaches after him does it a little poorer, and the guy who comes after him does it a little poorer, and if there's nothing bringing you back to the Word, pretty soon you get super fanciful preaching and super piss-poor preaching because the truths brought out from it aren't biblical truths anymore. They're insights from the last guy. Mm-hmm. John. Well, I mean, we need to remember that medieval people listened a lot longer and they memorized a lot more, both lay and <coughs> clergy. So I'm saying they didn't have the Bible really overstates it. They memorized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I, I sound like I'm picking on them so hard, and I need John coming in here and balancing me out too. So, yes, they could sit and listen, and they would actually find it entertaining. Um, for the most part, we don't find it entertaining to sit and listen to somebody, let alone stand and listen to somebody. Um, in fact, the more you stood, the less happy you would be. Uh, <laughs> and so they were standing and listening, and they were doing it for longer periods of time than we we're used to, for sure. So, um, I want to talk about the Eucharist and especially the Mass and its development, but um, there's only two minutes left, and that would be foolish for me to get into. So instead, we will talk about that next week. Um, yeah, this is a good place for us to stop. So let me, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our brothers and sisters who came before us. Lord, those people who uh, they lived in a time that would be so different from our own. And yet, Lord, they are our brothers and sisters. And they persevered in spite of having weak preaching, oftentimes. In spite of having such limitations, they were able to glean the goodness of Christ from what they were able to get. And you kept and fed and protected your people by your Holy Spirit. In fact, God, I thank you that you protect the souls of people even through poor preaching. I pray, I thank you, God, that even a poor sermon can still feed somebody. Um, I thank you, God, that your spirit is living and active and that you care for your church. And so it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.